On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. This is Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I am your host, Mark. Dylan Hicks hops on the podcast to talk about a lot of stuff. He starts off taking piano lessons until his piano was stolen. True story. His first real foray into professional music was volunteering at a radio station. In fact, he was just as passionate about writing about music as he was writing music. After years of playing, he started a family and left music completely to start a career in writing. So we talk about the pros and cons of being musically obscure, comparing his approach to music in his 20s to that in his 50s, and writing an album of fictitious cover songs as his first release in over a decade, and how it ties into one of his novels. He's written more than just articles, novels, and pop songs. His album with John Munson, Munson Hicks Party Supplies, began life as a musical and evolved into an album. Dylan has released two albums since 2021 and is working on a third to complete his Bird Trilogy. But he has several other projects in various stages of completion. In the meantime, check out Dylan's latest album, Airport Sparrows, and follow him on Instagram at TheDylanHicks. Pick up his music on Bandcamp or wherever you get music. Follow us at Performance Annex on social media. Reach out there or theperformanceanxietypod at gmail.com. Buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash performance anxiety or get merch at performanceanx.threadless.com. Check out our sponsors. We've got some great stuff going with them. Now let's get started with Dylan Hicks on performance anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Yeah. Okay. You can edit an email a bit. Okay. This is Dylan Hicks of Dylan Hicks and Small Screens and other projects. Our latest album is Airport Sparrows. I had a great time talking to Mark about it um, on Performance Anxiety, one of my favorite podcasts. I hope you can check it out and check out all the episodes. Okay. I feel good, yeah. I'm going to bring my um, my kombucha to a different spot, I think. Oh, nice. No problem. <laughs> I don't know why I, I've become a habitual kombucha drinker, and, and it is kind of, I'm not, I, I haven't really decided even after four or five years of this whether I like it or not, <laughs> I drink it almost every day. You gotta shake it up, because there can be some, I don't want to get too graphic, but some kind of seminal moments, if you know what I mean. Yes, yes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've, uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's, uh. It's surprising to me. It's, I don't know. It's, it's, there's a, I've tried to open myself up to th- new things, even things that I yeah. didn't like beforehand. Right. Um, but one of the things that I will never open myself up to, and my wife will kill me for this, is she's from Alabama. And one of the things yeah. she used to eat as a kid were these nasty ass banana sandwiches. Oh yeah, and that was an, I, that's Elvis did that too. So that's just, is that more widespread? Than I well, thought, huh? Elvis's I can deal with, 
because yeah. his was peanut butter. My wife's was banana and mayonnaise. Oh no, that's yeah, that's, and that's two things that should never go together. No, if it's bananas and cool whip, sure, but not on bread. <laughs> yeah, or even peanut butter. I I can deal with yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just uh, I can't. Oh, it just gives me. She yeah. she. Well, uh, she yelled at me. She's like, you've never had, have you ever tried it? I'm like, no, it's disgusting. She's like, how can you say it's disgusting if you've never had it? So I tried one and yeah. I spit it out. Yeah. It's not to get. I have a, I have a problem like that. Uh, it's kind of a different part of the spectrum in terms of the food spectrum, but I don't like any food from the watery world. Oh, well, Anything. you would get along with my wife then. But but people are always saying, oh, you haven't had the right, and they try to give me this fancy salmon or this or that, and it's like, it's just yucky to me. I don't, you know, <laughs> I have had a few bites, and it disgusts me. You know? Yeah, you and my wife would get along this. She actually okay. should. Well, I just think it seems like things are on the rocks between this and the sandwiches. So, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm happily married. Well, yeah. But, you know. So, oh, before we get too deep into yeah. fish and banana mayonnaise sandwiches. Right, yeah. Thank you for coming on. This, oh, I've, thanks for having me, yeah. Oh, my pleasure. I've really enjoyed the music, and I like to find out a little bit about the history of each guest and find out how you got to where you are in your musical career. Mm-hmm. And so finding out that you, so you were born in Austin, Texas. Yeah. And your parents were kind of hippies. So growing up, whether it's in Austin or Minnesota, because you moved there when you were at 12, yeah. I think, Right, but but we had kind of a peripatetic. I had kind of a peripatetic childhood. I I was born in Austin, but I don't really have childhood memories from Austin. My parents were divorced, but before that, they moved to Minot, North Dakota, which is a small city in the center of North Dakota. I've heard of it. Okay, yeah. Why not Minot? Freezes the reason. So they- <laughs> <laughs> I like um, that. But there were some other spots in be- in between. Lived very briefly in DeKalb, Illinois, and then another town in North Dakota called Crosby. It's very far northwest. Oh, wow. Very small. Then a city, a small city called Idaho Falls, Idaho. My stepdad was a, a newspaper reporter, so the moves were usually precipitated by he'd get a different gig at a different newspaper as a reporter or sometimes as a reporter editor. Okay. And so we came to Minneapolis because he went to graduate school for journalism here in Minneapolis. And that's what brought us here in 83 when I was 12. So I don't really have uh, roots anywhere else other than Minneapolis. I mean, I did, we moved around so much and I, I always say I'm from Austin, Texas. I think partly because that way, if we play one of the more country-inflected tunes, it feels a little more earned. <laughs> you know? I like that. Um, but, you know, that I tend not to emphasize that so much if I'm going a little further south as a performer, you know, where people might not be so persuaded. Uh, I, I have to admit, I do a little bit of the same thing because I was born in, in Killeen, Texas. Okay, yeah. But my family, we moved out when I was like three so I don't, okay, I have yeah. literally zero memories of it, but I always, yeah. I always pipe up. I'm, you know, I'm from Texas, right? Yeah, but, but you know, it's, my parents were born and raised in New Jersey. They were out. My dad was on. My mom's from New Jersey. Yeah. Oh, so we're nice. Kind of, we're kind of similar. Yeah. My, yeah. My, my dad was in the military. It was Vietnam. So he was on Fort Hood. And okay, uh, yeah. so he, you know, he was out there for years. And uh, so I was born, I was just born on the, actually on Fort Hood and then we moved out to uh they lived in Copper's Cove so mm-hmm. you know that, that's where i claim my hometown my hometown is until basically really moving to Winchester here where i'm at in Virginia 
Yeah, okay. Moved around a lot as a kid and not because of military, similar to you, actually. My dad would just get different jobs and yeah. a, better, a better job every each step of the way and then end up actually in New Jersey, back in New Jersey for 13 years. So. Oh, where, which, where, where? Uh, I was in Branchburg, uh, so like central New Jersey, uh, okay. right, right, right on the border of like 100 and Somerset counties. Okay. So, My mom's from Elizabeth, so that's oh, kind of the... I know exactly yeah. where that is, yeah. So it's, I, I kind of understand what you're saying about saying you're from Texas, but not really knowing what it's, what it's like. <laughs> not really remembering yeah. too much well, of I, it. I went back to play South by Southwest, I guess just once. That was really fun. Oh, cool. But I didn't have anybody to look up, you know, particularly. Yeah. But yeah, anyway. Uh, so, all right. So you moved around a lot. You mentioned that you, your parents were kind of hippies so was that was, was music a big part of that because i know a lot of times a lot a lot of the hippies they're huge into music and they would play all kinds of stuff was, yeah, was that um, the case for you well i mean yeah i mean my, my parents let's see my biological parents aren't musicians as players really my mom's a pretty good singer she doesn't do that anymore but she was raised catholic but she um in midlife became an ordained Presbyterian minister. Oh, wow. So she would do some singing in church sometimes or just leading the, you know, leading, not leading the choir, but leading the congregation. She'd like to sing, but, you know, it's not something she's concentrated on. My biological father, he loves music. He's not musical himself, but he, um, so he was born in, let's say, 43. So he was, he had pretty cool tastes when he was in late high school and college. So he went to college in the early 60s, and that was a period when a lot of the collegiate types were really into jazz. And so he had, he was also into classical music and musicals, but he loved you know, Sonny Rollins and Miles Davis, oh, Dave yeah. Brubeck. Oh, I love um, Dave Brubeck too. Yeah, Maja Mall. A lot of the stuff that was kind of popular with the younger set at the time. And when I was growing up, those LPs were sort of obsolete, you know, so I just kind of liberated them from his, his they were just sitting at his parents house <laughs> oh okay. so he wasn't i didn't steal them really like they weren't being used some of them are a little hacked up but a lot of them are in good shape so oh, nice. so that was part of my musical upbringing i guess a little later but as a boy i know in austin they brought me to there were a lot of outdoor concerts and one was by a guy named Mans lipscomb he might know he was a blues singer texas blues singer who was born in like 1892. So I saw him in like 1971. Wow. You know, I mean, I think he's the only performer I can, that I know of who was born in the 19th century Jeez. that I saw perform. I don't remember that. Wow. But Jerry Jeff Walker, you know, um, oh, yeah. a lot of those, I don't think they ever saw Willie Nelson, but they did see Jerry Jeff Walker and um, some of the other people who were kind of around the outlaw country scene. And then, you know, my, my mom, she loved uh, Frankie Valli and Dion on the Belmonts and a lot of stuff. When she was a teenager in New Jersey, Elvis Presley, uh, a lot of the doo-wop stuff, Sam Cooke. And then my stepdad's a little bit younger. He was a big Beatles fan, so he was kind of just a little bit younger so that the Beatles were the thing that got him into popular music. Okay. He also likes folk music, um, singer-songwriters, and he likes to play a nylon string guitar, so he'll play some Bach things on the guitar. He's not wow. a professional guitarist, but he's a, a lifelong amateur, so he, and, you know, a pretty good player. So I did grow up around music in that way. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. 
Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey everybody, I've got a great sponsor that I want to talk to you about. For a long time, I wondered if CBD was something that might benefit me, but I had no idea how to find out. I didn't know what products were available, what companies were reputable, and really even what questions to ask to get the answers I needed. That's why I'm so glad I found Pure Spectrum CBD. They helped me discover what CBD could do for me. They were awesome at determining what my needs were, and they helped me find a starting point. I started with the tincture and the isolate, but there's also gummies, topicals, mints, and a lot more. Pure Spectrum not only has CBD products for wellness, they also have them for fitness and recovery. There's even CBD for your pets. The website has a ton of information and chat options are available and all their products are third party tested and the results are available right on their website. So go to PureSpectrumCBD.com to do your own research and when you check out, use code PERFORMANCEANX for 15% off your order. Check them out on Instagram at PureSpectrumHemp and subscribe to their email list for sales, new products and updates. PureSpectrum, refined phytocannabinoid wellness products for all lifestyles. What was it that really got you into music out of all of that? What, what hit you and made you really start to want to discover more and start playing yourself? So I was surrounded by music and my parents would play music just about every night, you know, after dinner, just, it was just something that was on more. I mean, they watch TV too, but it was just on a lot. Yeah. And it, a pretty good volume, like not blasting, <laughs> but, but for parents, you know, it was a reasonable volume. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> it was a good, it was, it was not high like for you, a parental volume. Yeah. Now like you come over to the house, you're like, is there music on? You know, right. I feel like there's some kind of atmospheric something that's, you know, <laughs> definitely like you could hear it, you know? Um, and then let's see my, um, I did take piano lessons for a little while when I was a boy in Idaho. So this was the early, was the early Reagan year. So 81, maybe 82. Okay. I, because of the divorce, I would, my, the custody deal was that I would spend most of the summers with my biological dad. And then he remarried, um, in the 82. So the, the lessons were a little bit, they weren't very long and they were probably only a year, year and a half. And then we moved to Minneapolis. So I missed, I'd missed the summers with the lesson. And then we moved to Minneapolis and the piano didn't move with us. Oh. Um, it was not because my parents, consign the piano with the hopes that we would get a new piano in Minneapolis. But 
I guess the, the essence of the story is that the people to whom they consigned the piano stole the piano. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's the bluntest way to put wow. it. We never got paid for the piano. We oh. must have done something with it. Oh, um, no. It wasn't a valuable piano. It was a very, you know, it was a very modest console-sized upright. And I wasn't a prodigious or a disciplined student, so it wasn't like I was saying, get me my piano, I, you know. <laughs> I just moved yeah, on. Like most kids, you know, piano lessons are chores and not. Yeah, you want I wasn't do. really. Yeah, and I but I did learn how to play some some chords. Then on my my stepdad had guitars kicking around. The, the one that I learned on, I guess, was a a harmony guitar from the '60s. If you know, they're kind of an off brand. That was yeah. it was a big dreadnought sized, you know, like a big dreadnought Martin, but a very inexpensive guitar but a pretty good sound i didn't know you could adjust the action guitar so this was like a dobro i mean it was very oh. difficult to, to play you know yeah. I mean, it wasn't a dobro but like after the third fret it was kind of like wow it sure gotta, felt like one <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah so i don't know i i wasn't but i was mainly i did radio work i did um i was a volunteer at a community radio station oh. here in um minneapolis which is also where i met my wife nina hale oh cool she was another volunteer so I like to be around that. I would do. I did volunteer shows. I did a jazz show, and then I did a hip hop show, and then I did a kind of variety show. So, oh wow, my tastes were always pretty eclectic. And then I also I loved. I was an only child in the sense that I do have half brothers, but I didn't spend the school year with them. So I kind of kind of identified as an only child in the sense that I was the only kid in the house during the school year. You know, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So in addition to my friends and parents, I and my fellow volunteers at the station, I I read a lot of music criticism and history. So I loved at that time. This was this '80s. So I liked to read Real Marcus and Bob Criscoe and later Greg Tate and Martin Williams was a jazz critic. I just loved to devour that kind of stuff and learn as much as I and also the liner notes to LP. Oh yeah. So that was a big one for me. So. That was always part of my thing was listening, but also um, trying to contextualize that through to reading. And then later in life, I, I I did do some professional writing about music. I kind of that was sort of closer to my ambition as a teenager. I didn't feel like I was a particularly um, I didn't really think of myself as a musician so much. I thought of myself as a fan who maybe would do something with music, but who could also play some songs. Oh, OK. Yeah, so I've never really had that sense of like I know that a lot of my friends who are musicians have have a kind of um, some some animosity toward you know the the, the critic the critic um, yeah of course now it's like you're lucky to get any anybody to write anything about you but no kidding I've always felt um, that I was sort of aligned with both camps to some degree like I'll be frustrated with. Certainly not once in a while I read a piece of criticism that isn't very well turned or right. doesn't seem to be listening very carefully, but I'm not like, I, I'm, I'm in favor of the pursuit. I like <laughs> analyzing things and, you know, trying to, um, so I've done both of that, both those things, I guess. Yeah. You, you do, you live in both worlds and that, I guess that was the, uh, my first real question is what was the, your first I don't want to say love, I guess maybe, but what was your, and I think maybe I actually kind of just answered mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Uh, what was your, your first career ambition was to be a, more of a writer than a musician? Well, as a teenager, at least, I mean, I, I, I mean, I was, I didn't have it really mapped out, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> what you, oh, wait, you, you didn't. Oh, what were you doing in your teenage um, years? 
I, I did a little writing as a teenager, you know, just kind of for fun, kind of not not plagiarized, but very derivative, okay. you know, sort of trying to write reviews and that kind of thing. And I wrote songs. They were kind of novelty songs. So I was sort of doing both things. I would say the moment, the main reason I thought about, I, I thought I, I did go to college, but I wasn't um, focused and I had some other things going on. So I was politely asked to leave. I think college. You, your family and my family are, are, are running like parallel lives because oh, I ended okay, up doing yeah. the same exact thing with photography. So. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I went to school for it later. Same I thing. Went back later, but there was a long gap, and I worked retail. Same here. <laughs> okay, yeah. So um, I guess it was the I was working this funny internship in the summer of 1990 that my stepmother had set up for me. I'm not sure if this merits. You can always edit this out if it's too boring, but <laughs> it was kind of, um, it was sort of one of the last summers that you could have had this job. It was, I worked at the call in the call center for what was then called Arthur Anderson, which is Accenture now, but you know, um, yeah, accounting and, yeah, I um, that too. yeah, so it was in the loop in Chicago. So I would, you know, take the train in and that was kind of fun. About three or four of us who were either temps or, you know, young people would work in this little area and then some older, more professional people would answer the phones and, and take messages. And then they would, they would type out the messages on, um, and then feed them to us. It would come in through like, sort of like receipt paper. Um, that was sort of a combination of a movie ticket and kind of a Morse code. So, I mean, it wasn't code. It was language. It was right. English, but it was, um, it was kind of, uh, it looked like you were, you got a receipt from like a movie and you had to kind of decipher it a bit. Okay. And it would say something like, Bob, the Henderson report is overdue. Or it would say, Karen, remember dinner with the Hendersons tonight or whatever, <laughs> you know, any message. Right. It was like a perk for the employees. You didn't have to get your own messages on the man machine. Oh my God. Uh, a 19 year old would, would hand them to you at your desk. So after you got three or four of them, you just kind of ride the elevators up and down the stairs and say like, here you go, Karen. <laughs> of course, overdue. <laughs> wow. And, uh, oh. um, that was the internship. I don't know what I was really preparing for. I don't, but, you know, I don't, it sounds like you were preparing to be replaced by email. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what it said. Yes, exactly. So like I say, I couldn't have lasted too much longer, but anyway, right. I had that, Internship. I was living in Chicago with my. That was my biological dad and his, my stepmother, and then their kids were young at the time. And I, they, she had a. My Mar Margaret, my stepmother, had an old upright piano from some Chicago manufacturer, probably from the turn of the last century. And I played that a little bit and uh, started writing some songs that summer. And also, um, I kind of thought. I got to do something creative that I can have by December, you know, like to give away as Christmas gifts or just to friends or whatever around that time. Oh, cool. And, um, I didn't know. And I was actually, I remember thinking like, maybe I should make a movie. Cause I think a friend of mine had a video cassette, you know, oh, recorder, wow. and we, had, we had fooled around with it. That's dangerous. Like, well, I don't really, yeah. Teenagers. You know, with, with... I wasn't going to make Blair Witch Project. <laughs> I was going to make something that no one would ever watch. You right. know? <laughs> Except like somebody who was like compelled to, cause I was like, Hey guys, <laughs> look at what we did. You know? um, <laughs> so I decided that was too much work and I didn't really know what I was doing, but I did also have some friends who had a, you know, if you know the, the Fostex and Tascam four track cassette recorders. That oh yeah. Time. Yeah. Okay. So 
they have those. They were a little older than I am. A guy named Terry Easton, a guy named Al Lehman. And so I just recorded some of these songs, these kind of novelty songs at their apartments, you know, our houses on those things. And then I just, I just used a dual cassette player, you know, like a boom box with oh, two yeah. cassettes and made dubs of those. Like, and then we just walked them over to the record store and I sent them to some, you know, all weeklies and stuff. So that kind of determined it because it turned out that we got a few little items, you know, in the Minneapolis all weeklies and sort of, oh, cool. that sort of, yeah, it sort of like gave rise to the idea that, well, maybe we should perform and kind of put together a little band. And so I would say okay. it took a few years before I thought of it as being more than kind of a lark that I just kind of stumbled in and eventually became something that I thought, oh, I would like to professionalize this somehow. Right. Yeah. So I'd say the spark, the, the love of music was since I was, I started collecting 45s when I was seven. Okay. You know, the, the thing, music that was not marketed toward children, at least, you know, right. it's not little yeah. children. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I've always had that and I still do. I still love records and, you know, playing my stereo, but it was probably kind of in my twenties that I started to kind of think about myself more as a musician, really not till my mid twenties. So is that, yeah. is that when, uh, I guess maybe you can, you can kind of explain this a little bit better. Is that how mm -hmm. you either hooked up with or formed three pesos? Yeah. Well, so that those guys I just mentioned, Al and Terry, who owned the four track players were sort of, they became in that group and there was a drummer named Pat O'Brien and then a bass player named Steve Parker. These were all, I don't know. They're maybe five to eight years older than I am. I'm not quite sure. They had played in bands. They had more experience. They're all good players. I wasn't, you know, a technically accomplished player by any means. So I mainly sang and wrote the songs and played some rhythm, rhythm guitar. So yeah, we did that. And uh, then there was some personnel changes and name changes. And I just kind of played in different groups under my own name throughout the nineties. And, you know, we did some touring and, you know, we had, a, there was a, a, a label that was uh, was run under the there was kind of an umbrella operation that Paul Stark, who was one of the co-founders of Twin Town Records, as you know, to put out the replacements records and yeah, things like yeah. that. He didn't oversee these labels, but he helped kind of um, I don't know. He helped set them up with distribution and that kind of thing. And they so they ran independently out of the building that he owned, or maybe he rented it. I'm not sure. Anyway, so that was a label called No Alternative. A woman named Kim Randall put together so. We put out three records with them. You know, it was, I had a lot of fun. It wasn't, you know, it didn't really turn into a significantly remunerative operation for me. So <laughs> as I was about 30, I, I don't know. I, I really was pretty young still now. I think she's 30, you know I mean? Yeah. But it's still, it. I was kind of exhausted by that. You know, I just couldn't, I didn't really foresee things changing drastically in terms of really making any money doing it. Okay. And my wife and I were thinking about having kids. And I was working record stores and doing other jobs and music that, you know, they were kind of enjoyable, but I thought maybe I could do something that was a little more, that felt a little, that I, that I could be better at because I wasn't always so great at, I was you know, doing like some booking that I was not good at because I'm not good with people on the phone. Like. <laughs> so that's when I started working as a freelance journalist and that led to some staff positions. And then I started writing novels and that kind of thing. And we were raising our son. So my whole thirties, I really didn't play music much, you know, it was just, it was a lot of work. I was working a lot. And then I was, it was, you know, parenting as you know, is a lot of work. And yeah. so 
And I guess it was sort of depressing for me to think about trying to play it a little bit or at what I mean to say is that it was um, psychologically, it was easier for me not to really play at all really? during okay. that period. Yeah. Because I, I didn't think I would be able to do what I wanted to do given the time I had. Okay. And so. So you just put it down completely. I just, yeah. I mean, I once in a while I'd sit down and play, but you know, if you, play, if you sit, if you're away for for long, you kind of sit down and you play, you're like, ah, oh, I don't even, not very good, you know? And so. And see, that's kind of surprising to me because I was looking, checking out your discography and, and the, the early music and all. Mm-hmm. I was, I saw a TV show that you were a part of called What? Oh. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, and okay. it looks like you're having a blast on that. It looks like you're having a t- you know so much fun. And in fact, there's the song uh, "You Make a Better Door" off of that uh-huh. show. What was is just awesome. I absolutely love that that track. Oh, thanks. Oh, sure, it has been said before. It's true though. You make a much better door than a window. Was, we were really young then. It looked like you guys were having a lot of of fun, at least during that period. Yeah, of time. oh for sure. Yeah, and I and that was I don't know what year that was. That was a friend of mine, Chris Strauss, who put that show together. I'm not sure how old we were, but I was probably young, twenty three or four. Yeah, I think um, it says here on the on YouTube, February of ninety four. Okay, so yeah, I must have been twenty three. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, and I continue to have fun, but it was just, um, I don't know. I mean, I think it was, I, I, somebody else would ask me about this, you know, the, there's a lot of advantages. Obscurity has its advantages. Yeah. In the sense that you can, it does give, you know, give you some freedom as an artist to kind of pursue what you want. There's not a lot of pressure from business sources or from fans. So you have to be a certain way. You know, you're, we're really, you know, you've established a reputation, a commercial reputation or an artistic reputation that's difficult to break away from. Right. That's an advantage. But having said that, obscurity can sometimes feel like failure. And so you have to kind of push through. And if you want to do this your whole life to kind of think like, you know, and I think at that age, when you're, I'm 52 now. I've just turned 52, mind you. But um, <laughs> well, happy I, um, birthday, belated. I yeah, guess. I, you know, I, I don't really have a lot of. I mean, I'm not saying that I never feel like, oh, I wish that there were a larger audience. I still sometimes have those feelings. But you know, you get to a point where you're not thinking like, well, you, oh, the phone rang. I wonder if it's Jimmy Kimmel. I mean, <laughs> you no, know, it's not. I mean, it might be Jimmy Kimmel, but it'd be like, no, no, I work in IT. Uh, uh, I got a call from the Geek Squad. Yeah, says they're, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, when you're 29, you kind of still think, oh, maybe I can try to, like, you know, make this a kind of a semi-big thing. Yeah. And and then that was, that was kind of a, the dream was sort of like, I don't know if that's going to happen. And I think I worry that I'm going to become adrift and resentful if I don't, if I don't shift to something else. Okay. Then later in life, I was able to kind of come back and, you know, and I have been having a lot, I mean, not, not every aspect of playing music is fun, but for the most part, I have been having a lot of fun and, you know, and I kind of like, well, it's psychologically advantageous to like what you're doing currently more than what you did in the past. <laughs> yeah. But I like what I'm doing now. It's like, it feels more <laughs> Like just that's just you change and you just do different stuff and you know. Oh. So anyway, I I totally understand that. Again, we're doing parallel things because I went to college for photography, did that mm -hmm. professionally for like twelve years until okay. my wife and I had kids, and the uh, roller coaster of an income from being a you know freelance photographer in Southeast Alabama, you yeah. know, I had to I had to get something a little steadier and uh, yeah. so put that away until my kids were a little older and now I'll, I don't necessarily do photography professionally but. I do mostly live music photography at this point. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So it, and there's something about, yeah, there's something about the fifties. It's a little bit like it reminds me of my twenties in a way, because when I started doing creative stuff, I wasn't thinking like I really wasn't, I didn't really have very concrete ideas about how I could make a living doing it. it was just doing it exactly you know and also when you're 22 you're not worried about that you're like wait a minute you know the numbers just don't add up here you know, yeah. like, you, know you're, you're, you don't you just it'll all work out yeah exactly. Well, you know? exactly. um and uh and then you know, i feel like in my 40s and 50s it's been a little closer to that you know just kind of doing it and also i think i'm starting to see some people my own age coming out to shows again because if they had kids those kids are independent now yeah or maybe they didn't have kids or whatever and they you know they're just a little bit free or whatever you know yeah there was definitely that period in my 30s when i was like oh we're doing a show but i didn't play a bunch in my 30s but you know like early 30s oh yeah well i hope it goes great you know yeah <laughs> tell me I'm how to leave the house for another 12 or 14 years yeah <laughs> <laughs> let me know how it was yeah i know i would do the same exact thing and and you know uh, we're pretty close in age and, and 
obviously our friends are this would be the, about the same age, and it, it happened to almost everybody I know too. You know, it's yeah, oh, yeah. Hey, this band's in town. Yeah, great. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, maybe 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 this clip will show up on YouTube or something. <laughs> yeah. So, how did you get into writing professionally? What uh, what was your first real gig as a writer? Yeah. Well, I had done some stuff for fanzines and things like that in my 20s, but not a whole lot. I think I'd done a few little things professionally then. But I I had friends, you know, who were editors and a friend of mine named Heidi Rashke, she, she was editing a music magazine that Musicland was funding, strangely okay. enough, but they let them get away with some pretty cool stuff. So I just did an internship kind of later. I wasn't, it was in my th- early 30s. I was a little old for an intern, but... It was fun. Yeah. Did that. And then I, while I was doing that, I started kind of submitting some stuff to um, the city pages, which was one of the alt weeklies that we had then. And um, I got assignments pretty quickly. And uh, I don't know, I always had a certain linguistic aptitude. So, and I did know music and other, I knew, I knew music quite well. And I knew some of the other arts well enough to kind of, you know, do my research and, and get by. So I just, I kind of caught the tail end of a little more uh, lucrative period. It wasn't that lucrative, but I mean, like it was still, it wasn't dying quite yet. The, it wasn't the, like the whole e- job where email took your, your position. No, it was like the, it was the end of the sort of that era of the all weekly and yeah. the sort of the kind of freelance doing art stuff. I did see it diminish, but you know, when I first got into it, I felt like I was getting a lot of work. And I kind of liked that, you know, working on deadline and, and, you know, I liked the editorial aspects when I started doing that too. And then, um, that sort of the kind of the, that paper that I worked at, I eventually had a staff position that was purchased by another company that they had a sort of different way of looking at things. So as is often the case. Yeah. I, I probably should have stuck around and gotten fired, but I just, uh, <laughs> um, they will stick uh, around they get fired. Yeah. But anyway, I, um, yeah, then I kind of started, I did freelance, but then I, I started writing fiction and that led to a couple of novels. So it was all just sort of writing on spec and then submitting stuff. And, um, okay. you get rejections a lot, but you get acceptances and, you know, so it was kind of like that. Your novel boarded windows. Mm-hmm. Is that what got you back into writing? Because you did do a companion, a musical companion piece for that. Was it was that the idea from the start, or was it the the novel? Like, you know what? Let me, I kind of want to get back into this. The songwriting oh, um, aspect. Yeah, the, the latter really. So I wrote the I wrote the novel. The novel is sort of suffused with musical references, maybe a little to a fault, but I don't know. <laughs> I just got carried away and. Uh, <laughs> And there's a character in the in the novel, and I guess this sort of pertains to my roots we were talking about earlier, but named Bowling Green, who's kind of a, presented as sort of a third-tier outlaw country figure, you know, kind of like <laughs> or maybe once he opened for Jerry, Jerry Jeff Walker. <laughs> yeah, you know. It was this one night, you yes. know, and then Jay, ah, let's look for another guy. Yeah. Made some records, you know, and that kind of thing. So I had sort of already written in the written in the book like some references to him and his character. Then I had written like the, a, a satiric entry of his catalog in, in the Rolling Stone Illustrated or the Rolling Stone Record Guide, like one of those volumes that I had when I was a kid. 
so I had song titles and some ideas and then I just started kind of writing some of those. So it was, that was really just kind of what compelled me to, to do that because it was sort of like an assignment, like, Oh, what would it be like if you wrote, if you wrote this guy's songs, you know? And so eventually I kind of came up with this idea that I would cover this material that is fictitious and doesn't really exist, but I would sort of, it was like a tribute album. And, uh, you know, in the end, it wasn't like the most perfectly coherent conceptual album, because I also included some songs that were kind of more nebulously related to, I just happened to happen to have them, you know, but it felt like it all kind of was of a piece. It all kind of came from the novel. And uh, yeah. And so that was done really quickly. I mean, I, I wrote it fairly quickly, but also, it was all written after the manuscript had been submitted. Oh, okay. All the songs, yeah. Wow. So I did follow the book, and I get, went into a professional studio, but I was like, we, this is all we have. We had a fair amount of days, you know, but yeah. it was pretty, I guess now it seems pretty luxurious, but at the time, it, I hadn't played for a while, so it seemed kind of like we were trying to get things done in a hurry. Actually, it was probably took longer to make than my last record, but <laughs> by a long shot. But I feel like I'm a little more up to speed now, you know? Right. So, well, I um, did, I did love uh, Days of Dayton, Nights of Columbus. I love that song. That oh, is thanks. great. Yeah. Days of Dayton, Nights of Columbus Down in Cincinnati just making the scene Flat broken wall Shaking a coke machine Fast asleep in the shadow of the sirens Nodding off in a Hubert Heights And I haven't even gotten to the days of dating Not to mention the Columbus night That was fun. Also, the, the guy Joe Savage is a steel guitar player in town who's uh, really good. And he, he kind of, that's one of the tunes that he kind of helps in live him. Oh, nice. You wrote that as a companion piece for a novel. But yeah. then you, you kept writing. Would, did yeah, that and spark I wrote it? another novel called Amateurs, and, and that did probably a little bit better in terms, I mean, I got some nice reviews on that and nice, nice responses. I liked that book. I didn't do a musical companion to that one. And then in the, after that was published, I made another record produced by John Munson. And uh, I don't know, I guess since then, I, I just, I've started a lot of manuscripts, but usually... I've abandoned a lot of them in fairly early stages, really. I haven't even really given them, you know. <laughs> oh, wow. Like, and I don't know. I think it was, it was like about a year ago, this, it was about a year ago that I, um, I had a detective novel, kind of a literary detective novel that I was sort of working on on and off. And I would pick it up and think like, yeah, there's some good stuff in here. Nina and I went to a little way up north in Minnesota, like, it was so cold. And oh. it was, I smashed the car because I slipped out. It was a, you know, it was oh, a fun no. trip, but it was kind of a traumatic one. Oh. Um, oh, and uh, it was like 75 below before the windshield factory. You know, it was really cold. Oh my God. Um, I mean, I'm kidding, but it was really cold. <laughs> I brought this manuscript up here and I was like, I don't know. I don't think this is really happening. And I think that's the last, I think eventually then I decided, you know what? Right now, you're not working on book-length manuscripts. You're just playing music, and you can do some freelance writing or freelance editing. That's great. But So I wouldn't mind doing that again, but I just lost a little steam in that. And I, I feel like songwriting can have a you know a literary component, so I still feel like I get to work with words. Well, that's one of the um, things I, I wanted to mention to you, was that, that one of the things I love about your writing is that each of your songs 
is a story. It's very well written. They're like little concise little novels almost in each oh. song. And that I, I love that. I really appreciate each song being a story in and of itself. And it's, it's fantastic. Um, oh, thanks. And I think maybe this is because of the, you're a writer. I love the album add out. I love how you start that. Meanwhile, back at the copy store. Oh yeah. That, uh -huh. Starting in, in a whole album with, with the, the word meanwhile, I, yeah, it's, yeah, right, it's right. kind of blew my mind. I loved that. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, all right, so this is a whole new album starting. What, what did I miss beforehand? What's right, what is going yeah, on in yeah. here? I've got to pay a lot of, mm -hmm. I got to pay attention now. Meanwhile, back at the copy store, I loosely work till three or four. My eyes were red and underscored. Most things in life are crashing bored, but you were interesting to me. Interesting to me. Standing by the doomed elm tree. I think one of the things I like about songwriting is that you can, um, they can be pretty, they can be clear and elliptical at the same time. Okay. You know, like you can write a song and someone can say, yeah, I think I know what that's about. I I've had that experience myself where I can understand the essence of that. Yeah. But there's a lot of details that aren't present because you can't, well, you can, but I don't usually fill my song with lyric, lyrics and lyrics and lyrics and lyrics, you know? Right. And so sometimes I kind of know, well, actually the background is this, but I don't include that in the song. Sometimes I just have a sense for it, you know, I don't have it all worked out, but I kind of like that, that, you know, you, there's a lot of blanks to fill in for the listener. And, um, yeah. but I, I do like that for there to be some kind of, some kind of narrative or at least a, some images that really, that might be memorable or something, you know, I try to write the lyrics with care, but also think about things like how do they phrase, how do they sing? Right. You know? And so that is a built-in constraint that you don't have as much. Well, I really want to say this, but I've only got nine syllables and I need to end with an ooh sound. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I think the thing that, I, that I've noticed is that since you inhabit both worlds of songwriting and novel writing and, you know, and, mm -hmm. and other literary writing, yeah. the, the lyrics are... I don't, I don't even know how to, I'm obviously not a writer because I can't figure out how to say this, but for example, lines like, um, my pants were flared. Now they're tapered. Uh -huh. I mean, that, that just says so much in one line. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I really appreciate that type of songwriting, especially now that I'm mm -hmm. about to hit my fifties as well. Uh, you yeah, know, right, yeah. the songwriting you do in aid to camp and in here with you are, are just awesome. Yeah. Snow fell, but it wouldn't stay on the ground. We turned our heads, a disturbingly familiar sound. I'm down a three-hour Brazilian. Let's just sit here for the credits till the song is through. I could be your right-hand man, and I could be your left foot too. So that okay. So you, you mentioned John Munson earlier. That brings us to the Munson Hicks Party Supplies album. 
Okay, yeah. How did that happen? Because that's basically your music, and you're playing on it, but John's doing most of the singing. Yeah. How did that, whose idea well, was that, and how did that kind of coalesce? Yeah, it was kind of in a kind of roundabout fashion. So John and I had done the Add Out record, and we enjoyed working together, and then we were, um, I think he originally proposed, um, oh, we got to try to do some a musical together, you know? Okay. And I was kind of flattered by that idea you know that he would ask me to help with that and i was excited about it so i came up with some ideas and actually started writing and we and i i came up with it eventually came up with a draft of a book you know what they call a book for a musical and then and we each contributed songs and i i i was pretty prolific so i probably had quite a few songs and and we got as far as a state as a, a reading where we had some some professional and some amateur actors sort of read through it and then we just john and i performed the songs and we had a a woman who was an artistic director at one of the theaters kind of look observe and that kind of thing so wow. and a few other people so we got kind of we got reasonably far along the process i kept sort of putting it aside i just i wasn't sure if i was it was quite my form or i just didn't i liked aspects of it quite a lot but i wasn't sure if, sure if i felt like the whole concept was that I just wasn't quite compelled to keep working on it day day after day, which is usually how something gets done. Right. Right, So um, (laughs) anyway, I, I kind of proposed that we take some of the songs, some of the songs that I thought were strongest and we both kind of thought so too, or at least he had some really good songs in there too, but I was focusing on my songs. I conceptually, I said, well, yeah, it relates to this concept, but it wasn't as if they advanced the plot. Okay. In a, in a way that some musical songs do. Right. So I sort of thought, what if we took two or three of those tunes and then I'll, wrote, I'll write other songs and you'll sing most of them and we'll kind of turn it into an album. It was a hot day, round about noon, city in view. I'll be there soon. I sang do 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 along with the band. I was a slob king of the connoisseurs, gently kicking against the spurs. If you knew me back then, you'll understand. But with the Howard Johnson's gateway beckoning ahead, something overcame me. I thought I might be dead. So we get some of the work that we've done on this musical, even if the musical doesn't survive. So that's kind of how it, it kind of sprang out of the musical, which is still in a drawer, but I don't know if I'll pick it up again. But, you know, <laughs> but, I, but actually we did, you know, but it was sort of like we had this long period of kind of workshopping some of those ideas. And, and then those, those just maybe it was only two songs that we, that we repurposed from the musical and then maybe one song title that I rewrote, but it kind of established a template, I guess. And uh, yeah, so it was uh that was kind of how that came about. Yeah, it was kind of um, a friend of mine named Franklin Bruno. He's a songwriter who's about my age. He's also really good. He had done a record with a woman named Jenny Toomey back in the around the turn of this, like 2001 or two, I forget, four okay. maybe. Same kind of thing, whereas mostly his, his songs, but she sang. And of course, there I love the Waylon Jennings album, Honky Tonk Heroes, which is all Billy Joe Shaver's songs, or yeah. all but one. And uh, John is a big fan of the Nielsen record of Nielsen sings New- Randy Newman. So we both had, which I like too, we both had some references of like, oh, there's some cool albums of like 
the songwriter is not the singer, but there's yeah. a, but there's a songwriting voice that runs through the record. It's not just a interpretive song, an interpretive singer who sings songs from all over the place, like a, a Streisand record where she just picks songs that seem to group together. Right, right, yeah, yeah. There's a there's something going through the whole album. There's some kind of connection. Yeah. Do you guys ever do that live in any in any uh, fashion? Yeah. Um, I mean, we did a lot of. It was so the record came out like we were mastering the record, and then COVID was starting to happen. Uh, it was starting to well, it was being a, it was a rumor, and then by the time we kind of finished, you know, we were sending off the record to manufacturing. It was here in the states, so we ended up doing a lot of like outdoor shows over the next couple of summers, you know, in people's backyards and other things like that. And then we did a, a stream, a live stream show that was successful, but kind of weird, you know, it was just. Oh. Us on stage and everything. Yeah. We actually have a, a show. It's, I guess I can't say it's booked yet, but it seems to be coming together in March uh, where we will play in a more conventional club. So, oh, cool. So that's kind of ongoing. And um, yeah, unfortunately, we didn't have a chance to really perform it after it was released in the way we normally would. But on the other hand, it kind of came out relatively early into the pandemic. So I feel like people were kind of hungry for it. Um, yeah. We got some nice nice response to it. I think by, you know, further into the pandemic, we're like, all right, you know, <laughs> I don't know if I want to sit here and watch you on Zoom, you know? Right, yeah, it's a little, it's a little weird. I've talked to uh, uh, several people who did live streams and all for the, mm -hmm. during the pandemic, and they said it was just a very strange experience because you're playing these songs live to yeah. no audience and there's no right. reaction and you just sitting there, just, the song ends and it's quiet. It's just really weird. Yeah, right, right, yeah. So speaking of the pandemic, that's around the time you, you made the Accidental Birds album, which definitely it's a different approach for you, it sounds like. There's a lot more yeah. programming and electronics in it. Was that mm -hmm. because you were doing most of it by yourself in the during the pandemic? Yeah, mostly. I mean, I, I did recording equipment. I used to have tape-based some stuff kicking around, but I had sold all that over the years. So I got a digital audio workstation and a microphone and a lot of that stuff I would just program on the laptop itself or on the, at the kitchen table, you know, oh, not even wow. with like, monitors, you know, <laughs> um, not so because I, because I thought that was the best way to do it. It was just like, I'm just here. It was easy and it felt very relaxed in a kind of way like, well, this is not even the real thing. I'm just screwing around on my laptop. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And then I would go back and forth between the piano and my laptop and like, well, what was the chord, you know? And I'd play the chord in the piano and then I'd come out with a program accordion. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, you know, and um, and then I would come back and play some stuff in, with my fingers too, but a lot of it, kind of the bedrock, a lot of it was kind of sequenced and programmed and finding interesting sounds and then manipulating the sounds and stuff like that. And then I would send them to friends to do remote recordings on their, in their homes Okay. And then we send them back, and then I might add synthesizer or a guitar or whatever and sing. Usually, I would when I sent them, I would always have the vocal there so they could hear that. So, yeah, it was mostly a product of that. I didn't have the capacity to record drums in my own place. It's a, you know, I just have four channels and, you know, a few things. Right. But then I did farm out some drum. JT Bates was a great drummer who he played, you know, a lot of people were setting up, oh, I got to set up some kind of recording operation here because that's the only work I'm going to get. Right, yeah. So it was also a chance to play with a lot of people. I think I had played with most of those people before or have since, but it wouldn't normally be 
feasible for me to like, oh, let, let me think of, let me write a list of the 13 musicians I'd most like to make this record. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little more, you know, it was practicable to like, hey, can you do this? Can you do that? Can you do this? And then, you know, and every time people would send me stuff back, like, oh, wow. And I would give them a chart and a few ideas and a demo. They would always give me more than I'd asked for. Always wow. really interesting stuff. I think a lot of people were hungry to kind of just play and not oh. that they were doing other playing yeah. too, but, and just to have that kind of freedom to like, Oh, okay. I can just kind of, let me try this part. And so, yeah, I think it helped people to maybe, maybe stretch their boundaries a little bit more than they would normally. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I love playing with people in the moment in a studio and it's kind of nice to have somebody else sort of in charge of the technical stuff. So you're not worried about that. Yeah. And I just like the feeling of like, okay, we just captured that, you know, as a group, it was kind of perfect for the moment. And it, and it came together so quickly. It was like, I just kind of dove in I bought the digital audio workstation. I kind of learned how to work it more or less in a week or so. And I think two and a half months later, I was sending off the record for a master. Wow. And I was like, oh, man. very much like, do it, do it. You know, I'm like, that's yeah. awesome. It was, it's yeah. funny because I was listening to it and I wasn't really paying attention as I was writing notes and getting ideas for, for doing this. I wasn't really paying yeah. attention to the timeline. And, and, and when it was, and I heard Twyla Tharp and I was like, that's different. This, this different approach it's weird but my favorite off that album is drunk from work i love oh, yeah that That's is nice my song. favorite track off that album i love that song got less than a lot i've had more than enough i got something wrong with my rotator cup motor oil colored coffee in this styrofoam cup let me try again should pick up So that one did have an origin. I did had written that before that concentrated block, which may have, okay. maybe I'm exaggerating, maybe it was three months, but it was, it was tight. Right. That song was something I had, and I would keep a folder called like unfinished songs or, you know, or rejected songs, or I don't know what I call it, but it's like, <laughs> it's a little folder of songs that have not gone anywhere. Right. And so I kind of was po poking through that and I found that song. And I had played it on the piano 
not not performed it, but I had written it and played it for myself. Okay. And I kind of dug it, but I was like, it felt it felt kind of familiar to me. Like I felt like I think I've written this song already. I mean, it's not. I, it had a different name and a different melody and a different chord change. <laughs> but <laughs> but it just but it feels like I I just I don't know. I just couldn't get get excited about it, even though I, there was something about it that I kind of liked. Anyway, so then I was sitting on a love seat with my laptop on my lap, and I just took the chart out that I had written. And again, I just started programming in the chords using these synthesizers and different stuff. And then I was like, oh, that sounds kind of cool. I like that drum beat. And, um, and then I, I sang it in a kind of range that's a little bit high for me, which sounded kind of cool, and then sent it to JT to play drums on it. I just loved what he did, and we just kept adding to it. Yeah. So it was a good example of, a, of a, was something, that, something about the recording process sort of revived my interest in the song. And then I started like, oh, I like the song quite a lot. It feels kind of evocative, you know. And um, I knew I, I really liked the styrofoam cup line, and that was sort of the, yeah. the main thing that made me want to come back to the song. <laughs> and then it's just like one line, like, I don't know, I like this image of this guy sort of nervously crushing a styrofoam cup. Yeah. I can somehow get a, get a song out of that, you know. <laughs> that, see that that's why you're a writer and I'm not. I don't know. Well, I'm a photographer. Yeah. At best, maybe we see. My my, my photographs are kind of like you know. How important is it for you to have your head in the image? <laughs> maybe have part of it. <laughs> I do have part of it. Yeah, I want to stress that. <laughs> All right, so you got this new album that came out in September, and yeah. you'd mentioned you know you like you kind of enjoyed the speed at which you were working. And this album, yeah. my understanding is that it was fairly quick. Everything was a little looser, a little mm -hmm. done a little quickly, not, yeah. not a whole lot of overdubs. Right. I mean, yeah, I'd say so. So like by jazz standards, it was probably pretty luxurious. Like I think we probably <laughs> had four days in the studio. Wow. But, <laughs> but they were broken up into two different sex sessions, you know? Okay. But by pop standards, it was kind of a little more alive, you know. So a lot of the preparation was done off-site. You know, I, I, I wrote the songs. I did, I deliver, like piano and voice demos, or sometimes MIDI demos, or guitar and voice demos, and then a chart it has some notation and some direction. I'm kind of self-taught, so I always say like, if there's something wrong. Trust the demo, <laughs> but you know they're usually legible, and people can like. I'm always really excited, like, because I've kind of taught myself how to do that. So I'm always like, "Oh, they're playing back what I wrote. You know, like, I did it right." Um, <laughs> but I also give them a lot of freedom. They're all they're all great players. So it's also a lot of sections where it's you know I don't like try to write people's. Once in a while, I want a melody that I'd like somebody else to convey but or have us play in unison but i yeah i don't try to like write you know people's parts and stuff like that because they're going to come up with great stuff okay so we just kind of worked privately and then this time partly because of it was still well, it is still COVID, but partly because of that and partly just for the sake of making it efficient and everything else we just kind of went into the studio and i and we just started and we kind of like worked on every tune for a couple hours and Worked with second, third, fourth takes, and um, I sang live. I did do an overdub on a couple of tunes, but and we did some overdubs, like some guitar overdubs and stuff. But for the most part, we kind of treated it like a performance in the studio. Oh, and I really so liked awesome. that. There were, you know, definitely some things that 
surprise me some things that a few things that we've never really performed that like oh yeah kind of that just sort of really came together quickly so yeah it was uh and i really like this this group is a really fun it's a large group and i normally work with six of us and the instrumentation is kind of was it more challenging to work with more people for you or would would it just pretty much fall in line Especially since it was more a little looser feeling. Yeah, it's more challenging to schedule. Um, you know, six people. Yeah. Um, not not otherwise procedurally. Um, okay. It's a really harmonious group, and personality-wise, we all sort of very supportive and friendly, and you know, it's a little more to. I I really enjoyed trying having some different colors to be like, oh, I could maybe maybe the saxophone and the cello could play this part in harmony or in unison or whatever. And you kind of have different, I mean, some new arrangement opportunities, you know? Okay. And there are a lot of soloists too, you know, Jack Harris, the guitarist is an amazing player. So a lot of people who can, I mean, I'm a decent player, but I don't think, I don't usually like set aside four minutes for me to improvise, you know? So (laughs) (laughs) had a lot of different improvisational voices as well as a lot of people who, you know, Everybody really, really, I mean, I'm always, I've been very fortunate always to play in groups with really talented musicians. And I'm always kind of like, I always kind of want to be the worst player in the band. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's pretty good, but like, you know, kind of the weak link in terms of like technical prowess. Exactly. You know, um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Alabama football. And one of my favorite quotes is from Bear Bryant. And he said, if you're, uh-huh. if you're not smarter than me, I don't need you. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I try to follow that in in a lot of my creative pursuits if that if ever i'm collaborating if you if if you're not better than me i don't need you right yeah yeah and i suppose in some ways it's sort of like like and i suppose like in a more confident way i might say like well i'm contributing these songs or i've contributed these ideas but i can't do this mm-hmm. you know and so you try to hopefully these sort of different talents are kind of um compliment one another and yeah right right well i love the opener instead of this it's that feels really loose and really ah i don't know there's just it's just got this great feel to it i I love it as an opener could be sitting S-shaped in a study care Looking through old sand dusty palm books Villainous names Fishing off the river bank Not for sport Or lying face down in a culvert Your khaki shirt stuck to your back by still damp blood so it's not so bad no it's not so bad oh thank you i'm glad i put that on the first as the first tune it was kind of like that was one of those ones where i guess one of the only ambitions i had for this sort of project and which some of it kind of carried over from the accidental birds thing because i played with some of those players remotely mm-hmm. and you know you know, more of a prose fashion, you know, where I wouldn't really worry about meter or, or rhyme or rhythm exactly. 
and I would just write, and then I would take that and see, could I set that to music, and then maybe I'd revise it so that it would sing a little better. But, so I don't know how many, maybe a, three or four of the songs don't rhyme, and uh, that's one of those ones where I was like, oh, I can still do this and make it sound like a song. Maybe I couldn't do it song after song after song, but if it's, you know, if it's in the context of other songs that are more conventionally written, you know, that have a rhyme scheme and maybe a little more regular melody, more regular rhythm and that kind of thing. So I don't know. I really like, I, I kind of want to do, it was fun. To me, it's one of the songs where um, your voice comes out and it's got, you've got this Tom Petty, Bob Dylan sound to your singing. And that's one where it it's definitely comes out. And I really think it fits perfectly with, with mm. the song. It, the, uh, oh, cool. It's one of my favorites on the album. That and, and the second track, Weather on Your Side, those are great. I love the cello. On oh, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Michelle Kinney, yeah. I used to be the older brother And I abused the upper hand I made you keep my secrets And just out more than you could stand You know I tried To atone for all my sins Anyway, you ought to thank me You really ought to thank me I probably thickened up your skin Well, cello's kind of... I don't, I don't actually know the cello language myself very well um, But it is kind of amazing how it's such a ranging instrument, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't remember exactly how many octaves, but I feel like it's four and a half or something. It's quite large. And, um, it is, you know, she can fill a bass like role, but almost also, a violin role as but well. Also be mistaken for a violin. Yeah. yeah. So, um, that's a lot of, um, and I really like playing with Michelle. And so, and I kind of like how the the saxophone and the cello to me they're they're kind of like even though I joke with Chris the saxophonist that he and I are part of the mouth section because we both <laughs> use our mouths to make music a lot. The mouth section. The saxophone and the cello kind of have their own. I guess maybe maybe partly I suppose they're their instruments that aren't part of the core rhythm section I suppose but they're also the um, they kind of can be a little section in a way. Okay. You know where, where they're sort of. They're not a string section. They're not a horn section, but together they're like a little duo that can do things, you know. Yeah, almost like a lead guitar. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like they they can take that lead part. Yeah. So, all right. So some of my favorites besides those, I love. I also love Random File. Oh yeah. And and I love the ending of Carson City. That guitar is just beautiful. Oh, I love that. Last night I spent a month in Carson City. Oh yeah. Last night I spent a month in Carson City We haven't really played. We should, but we kind of just did it there. Oh, really? Yeah, Carson City. Yeah, I don't know. 
Uh, we have we have the long instrumental Airport Sparrows, the title track, and that's like ten minutes long. That is awesome. So, okay. I love. So that. Usually, like if we're doing a gig, it's like, well, how many instruments can we play? You know, <laughs> um, and still sort of present ourselves as like we're a pop group, guys. <laughs> <laughs> one 10 minute instrumental and everything else has to be sh- but that's uh, something about this album the, the some of the songs are longer than on your previous albums you've got the 10 minute long instrumental uh the title track yeah. airport sparrows let's see what you've got oh the, the first track instead of this is almost six and a half minutes long yeah ghost blog seven just over seven yeah. so you, you stretch out a bit in this one yeah right yeah I don't know. And I would, um, the next project I've got, I've got a couple different things cooking up. One is sort of a, more of a side project. We've got, got a couple, well, a lot of different things. Cooking up, <laughs> a lot next, of irons in the fire. Yeah. But the next small screen thing is going to be a small screens record with some additional horns and some additional strings on different tracks for which individual members will write the arrangements and then a friend of mine named Jason Sanford will write an arrangement or two for some horns. But I, one one goal I have with that record is to sort of conceive it as a 45-minute album, even if I don't do the vinyl. So to kind of rein in the... I mean, it could have long songs, but I'll know how long the whole project will be. Oh, cool. Okay. Because um, I'd like maybe to... Having done these sort of more extended... I've done two records that are lo- over an hour. I kind of like to bring it in a little bit but in terms of the length of the individual pieces i'm yeah i'd love to keep balancing this sort of shorter three minute kind of pop form with these forms that can kind of move around a bit leave room for improvisation sometimes the songs have oh this is actually pretty tightly arranged and composed and then this is actually totally improvised or there's just a there's a really loose structure or there's a chord there's a chord change over which they're soloing, or it's actually free and we're not playing off of set harmony. Okay. So I like that there's some ambiguity about like, well, what have you planned and what is happening now, you know? And um, yeah. sometimes that can, having a lot of room to, to stretch out. And also like some of these songs where the lyrics are, or the vocal part is, is a, proportionally smaller than the instrumental part. It's just kind of fun for me. It's a sort of different, you know? Yeah. Would that be like a uh, another bird-themed title? Because you have accidental birds and then airport sparrows. Are we going to stick well, with the bird theme? Well, I might. If I, I wanted it to be a bird trilogy. <laughs> and I, that, although, to be honest, that didn't happen until that was after the first album. I came up with the airport sparrows name and thought, oh, yeah, now we're, on, now we're a trilogy. Yeah. But I don't have the third title yet. So I guess it depends on whether... I do that. You okay. know? Um, and it might be this will be enough of a departure that it that it wouldn't merit being part of many. I'm not sure. So but you, maybe the next one doesn't have to be part of the the trilogy. It, it could always no. Be, it could, could be, be. It could be that happens later. Exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. It doesn't yeah. have to come out in order. No, they don't. Yeah. So how did you come up with Airport Sparrows? What is an Airport Sparrow? Well, let's see. So, well, I should go back a little bit. Um, so accidental birds, the, that phrase mean has to do with, um, so if a bird through flight or through maybe being, um, landing on a, a shipping, a freighting ship, a freight ship, or I don't know what, some, or the wind, a bird gets thrown off course and lands in a place that's not its normal habitat. Okay. 
And so if you were to observe a bird somewhere that doesn't belong, that might be an accidental bird. Okay. It doesn't have, maybe it has a, number, a few of its, you know, fellow species, but maybe it's alone. And of course, that's the stri- that might mean that the bird won't be able to survive there because it doesn't have its normal food supply and that kind of thing. Right. Anyway, I kind of liked how the words, the, the sound of the phrase, and sort of thought that maybe you could apply it metaphorically in some way, like the characters are a bit adrift or a bit, you know, isolated. Okay. And again, that's not, that didn't, I didn't write the songs with that in mind, really, but, <laughs> okay. you know, but I kind of liked it. And then airport sparrows, you know, if you go to an airport and there's a bird flying around, it's probably a sparrow. <laughs> probably. And it's mostly a sparrow. <laughs> and I just kind of like that if you're in an airport and these birds are inside and, and, uh, and then the man-made things that fly are outside. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I don't know. I thought, I just kind of thought that would be, I think the instrumental tune, the, the genesis of that came before the title, but I was working on it for a little while and thought of that title. And then I asked us to, that song is pretty, is pretty composed, but with improvisational sections sort of worked set aside for people and but then the opening thing i just said let's just try to sound like birds oh cool and so the opening minute and a half or two minutes is just improvised us all kind of making sounds that we thought were were bird-like wow yeah that's awesome i like the title i like the music i like the artwork Oh yeah, the, the Air- Barlow's. Man. All right, so is there anything behind the artwork? Any any special any any pattern in particular to to the way it's the arrows are set up on the album cover? Well, I know that Richard um, wanted to um, imitate the signage that you see in airports, right? You know, direction signs and way wayfinding. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and so the bird. The birds sort of seem to point in all different directions, you know, so that kind of maybe evokes that a bit. I think the font is one that is is the one you see on road signs and also on airports. I'm not sure what it's called, but you know, I I don't know, but I I really like the artwork. It's it's very oh, thanks. It's concise. It's simple, but it's it's it seems I don't want to say chaotic, but it doesn't. The more you look at it, the more I, I see order. Like the outer ring is just a circle. Mm. And then, uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm just reading a little too much into it in my own head. Yeah, I don't know. So- <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, I I really love what he did. I mean, he, he, he did the accidental birds one too. And that was a cool process where he, he cut out a lot of um, paper, colored different colored paper and different supplies and then kind of, arrange those and photograph those so it almost oh, you could wow. look at it and it looks kind of digital but it's actually a, an image of something much more physical oh really yeah oh wow i it's, thought it was a, a something that done on the computer yeah this last one i think he did you know did do more on a computer but he's a great he does his name is a little off topic but rich is well he's done a lot of different things but one of his main things is he uh does these murals using chalk, but it's a kind of, um, they'll be kind of nature scenes, like a forest scene done in chalk. And there's, it's more to it. I'm not describing it very well, but it, you feel like you're entering a forest, but it's this 
And I don't really know how ephemeral they are. I'm not sure if like, well, they only last for a certain amount of time. Yeah. Or I think you can apply a material to make them permanent, but. I'll have to check that out. That sounds, yeah. that sounds really interesting. Yeah. All visual stuff. So. Yeah. So have you been able to, to play many shows with small screens and uh, what are, are you playing mainly the album tracks or are you pulling in some older tracks or stuff that you haven't well, recorded yet? Yeah. A little bit of all that we have, we played, I don't know, a number of times last year, we, we did a release show in the fall at a venue I really like here and with some friends of mine as on the bill, Abby Wolf and Eric Mason. And that was, that was a successful show. I was a little nervous because it was a bigger room than we would normally play, but it went, went well. And we had a really fun time. Like we it. have a show coming up January 24th at the Dakota, which is kind of our, it's now it's not exclusively a jazz bar by any means, but it, it has those roots. So it has a piano in them on stage. So I'll be excited to use that. And, um, yeah, we do, we kind of concentrate on the, this album. There were a couple of tunes from the previous album that most of us play on. We'll use some of those. And then, um, I've written a couple of newer things that we played. I'm not sure if those, if all those something in sort of something prose and then try to more or less memorize it and then recite it over their improvisation. Sometimes I'll, I'll give little instructions, like maybe listen to this word, this cue and use it to do this or make this change. Or it's very open. It's just like, you know, just come in at this word and then we'll see what happens. So those have <laughs> been really fun and people really like, like them. I don't know if I'd ever document them. I'm not sure if they would be the kind of thing that you that a person would want to listen to repeatedly or not. But anyway, we've done some of that, some of the, those sort of recitation improvisation things. I'd, okay. I'd like to do more of that. That can be really fun. So when you, so, are you playing more locally or are you mm-hmm. planning to maybe venture out of, of the Minneapolis area? Well, not a whole lot with this group. I mean, there are six of us. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I, I don't have like really robust markets outside of the twins. There are scattered around the country and even a little bit elsewhere some fans, but they don't really concentrate in any where, where I can say to a booker, you know, this show is going to kill. This is going to um, rock in Winchester. Right. Yeah. So I would like to do a bit more of that, I suppose, theoretically, but I don't want to lose money on it. Yeah. I've figured out so many great ways to lose money. Oh, that yeah. I just reduce. <laughs> <laughs> I know the feeling. I know the feeling. Again, parallel, parallel lives here at points. So, <laughs> So I've really enjoyed the album. I've loved, it's one of the ones that I, I can just sit down and listen to. Oh, and, that's so great to hear. Yeah. And, and, you know, and just like, actually I was listening to it again this morning. I getting prepared for the show. I just lay down on the bed and I just had it on. I just put, I, oh, cool. I, so yeah. my wife wouldn't, my wife was asleep. So I just I put the headphones yeah. on and I just lay down. And I just listened to it. And oh, cool. yeah. I absolutely loved it. So how can people pick up a copy are that physical copies available is it mostly digital yeah. and how can they follow you to to keep track of your your upcoming projects oh thanks mark um well i mean Bandcamp is my site like a lot of people um yeah. so if you search dylan hicks Bandcamp, it'll, it'll it'll say soft launch records which is my just little operation and, but okay. you can easily say dylan hicks Bandcamp, and that'll get to that record as well as i think there are four or five of them now that are in the era since I've been putting out my stuff independently. And uh, so you can order things from there. I think that 
the, the new one is only a CD or digital. Some of the older ones have an LP component. This one was a... Oh, I think I guess with this one, there's a 12-inch single that I'm waiting for. So if you really want oh, wow. vinyl... Yeah, I don't know if that was a wise move. I have not so far <laughs> old enough to justify the manufacturing. So it's kind of in that, that's the vinyl thing is sort of a tough. It's been, now there's these weird delays, as you probably know. Yeah. Like seven years to get your. <laughs> I know, it's, it's ridiculous. It's one of those things, I don't know if it's getting any better as we get further. Yeah, I don't know. It was supposed to start to get better. I'm not sure yet. Uh, um, but I'm, yeah, I'm more of a CD a guy myself, so I'll I have to get it on CD. Hey, you know, I mean, I have both, but I mean, lately I've been like a like the the used CD market is pretty. It's a buyer friendly market. It, it really is, <laughs> it, and a lot of the stuff that I get is older stuff. So yeah, yeah. So like, oh, you get a lot of pretty good stuff between two and eight dollars. I know. You know. What kills you though is the shipping to get it here. Yeah, if you have to go for far afield, yeah, yeah. Discogs, we've got whatever. like one music shop, one independent music shop, and I think it's actually the only music shop around right okay, now. Yeah, everything else is bit, was big box, and that's all like Best Buy right. doesn't have any more Target. Oh yeah, um, Fye. I think they're all basically record stores that used to be record stores that were chain record stores are now yeah. like novelty stores. You get all your oh, Minecraft sure. stuff there. Oh yeah, yeah. We still have a number of number of them here, but but if I find something, if I if I get a hankering for something that's a little bit off the beaten track, I sometimes have to go to Discogs, which is a kind of yeah. a fun site. I love Discogs. I do I do a ton of my research off of Discogs. Yeah, but you can definitely like you know. I'll sometimes I'll be like, oh, there's no domestic one. Of, I'm not going to spend twenty dollars to have this thing shipped over. I know from like Estonia or wherever it's coming from. It's yeah, someplace ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and then they got to figure out, you know, how do I convert? How how much is a rupee to dollars or something? <laughs> yeah, I don't. Know. I, um, I never trust. That. I'm always a little nervous yeah, converting anything I usually, into. I usually order the. I usually order order in the states just just to keep the shipping down. But, yeah, yeah. Um, so they can do that, or I'm on uh, Instagram, Facebook. Usually, I usually promote my stuff and that i wasn't i left twitter i was one of the people who left twitter during the in the muskian stage <laughs> but it wasn't and not because i'm such a you know high moralist i mean i was he was exhausting me it also doesn't really it I, wasn't really my bag i don't get a whole lot of return for my twitter book and that even before elon bought it and i and, and, and much like you I, it's i don't have a dog in that fight i don't care who owns twitter but I just don't get much of a return on it. I'll tweet out links to the podcast or things. And I'll, I, my wife will like it and yeah. retweet it. And that's like, that's about it. I get more bang for my buck on Instagram. And I like being a visual guy. I like Instagram better. Anyway. Yeah. I, I think for, I mean, there are times when I've enjoyed Twitter, when I get into a little conversational dialogue with people of like mine. Yeah. I, I do know when I was on Twitter, I would, I would meet some people who were, like also interested in music or into jazz or into this or that, that I just never would know. And that was kind of fun. But in terms of the self PR, my crowd really wasn't, it had a few friends, but it was a lot of people who were strangers. Yeah. They don't really care what you're doing. Exactly. It's not because they're mean. They're just like, everybody's doing something, you know, yeah. Facebook's a lot more friends and family. And they're like, that's the opposite where it's like, well, 
after 26 years of work, I finally wrote this beautiful Sistina that I set to music, you know, <laughs> and had this Belgian quartet, string quartet play, you know, <laughs> and they all hit like, like, like amazing. Oh, yeah. But then you look at the figures, no one's listened to it. No. Yep. <laughs> I, I, I'm so guilty of that too. Like, like I'll read like a, a sentence or two of, of some long post friends written. I'm like, like, I don't really want to get go through this. Like, yeah, that's good. just to show. Yeah. I'm still. I, I like that. You're doing it. You. I like that. You're doing it. Yeah. That, and that's, that's honest. I'm happy you're doing it. It's great. I don't <laughs> want to listen to it right now. But so I'll yeah. like it. Maybe come I'll, back to it. I might get to it. I might get to it. I mean, if I spent it's a big mic, we spent our entire day. Oh, like processing everything people were doing. I, we, that's what we would do. Yeah. It'd be my job. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. So I try not, to, I try to be very philosophical about it. I did get a funny email from somebody that has to do with technology in this issue or like, um, this is a person I really like. And, uh, this person had listened to my, well, okay. The, the beginning of the story is that I got a little notification through, I guess, through Bandcamp. you know, okay. Jane Doe or John Doe or whatever has opened up, your record, you know, to, I gave them a download. Okay. And oh, it's nice of Jane or John Doe to check it out. Right. To be honest, that's unusual. Okay. Unusual for someone like you to respond to something and say, like, let, let me check this out. Everybody's busy, you know? Yeah. But then, like, I get the email, hell, man, I've been listening to this thing since last Tuesday. <laughs> you haven't? <laughs> Even this since 55 minutes ago. I saw the email. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> you didn't have to juice it up. You know, it was, I was really, ex I thought it was like really generous to me to listen to it for 55 minutes. <laughs> send an email about it. I mean, you're so far ahead of the game. Yeah. Now you're trying to make it even better. Dishonestly. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. That is awesome. Man, I've had a blast talking with you. Thank you so much for spending oh, oh my, for me on, yeah. almost an hour and a half with me. This has been a blast. Oh wow, yeah. So. Well, I'll have to cancel everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have a colonoscopy at ten. Oh, I'm no, so I'm sorry. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. What <laughs> I, could happen? So I was supposed to give one at 10. So that was, that worked. <laughs> that was, that was, Perfect. Worked it's over out. Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is my, you know, I got to tell you, you know, I mean, like every once in a while, my wife comes into the shower, not into the shower, but into the bathroom where the shower is. Yeah. And, you know, I'm like talking to myself, what are you doing? Oh, I'm conducting the interview that will eventually take place, if, you know, <laughs> when the world starts to take notice of my work. <laughs> I so you're, you're helping me realize my shower fantasy. Yes. Oh, I've, man, if I had a dime for every time I heard that, <laughs> uh, I'd have like a dime. No, that'd be great.
What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.